The mind, by nature, is radiant and pure, the Buddha said. It is because of visiting forces known as the torments that we suffer. It is because of visiting forces to the mind, known as torments, that we suffer. So if you reflect over your experiences today and kind of review the experiences you had that were kind of torturous, you know, feeling anxious or doubtful or fretful or self-conscious or angry, irritated, um, wanting what you can't have or can't get or looking for something that you can't find, those kinds of states of mind kind of torment us that we get a little obsessed about, all that suffering, all that discontentment, if you will, caused by a visitor to the mind. It's not who you are. It's not how you are. It's not inherent within your personality even. It's just a visitor to the mind, the Buddha is saying. So if we can hear what the Buddha said and not necessarily believe it, but just to put aside our skepticism or our doubt or our lack of understanding or knowing what the heck he's talking about and consider what he said true or work with that understanding, we might have quite a different relationship to our discontentment, the the kinds of experience that we're not so happy about. Saito Utejaniya, one of the Burmese monks that we've practiced with, he says, it's not you who removes these torments from the mind. It's not you. Wisdom does that job. So it's not, it's not a personal kind of power struggle between you and the torment, but rather it's when there is understanding the nature of the torments, then it's that understanding that naturally removes them from the mind. So if we can understand that, we don't need to struggle with these, you know, the sleepiness and the doubt and the irritation and the impatience and the fear and the anxiety and the depression. We have to understand them rather than struggle with them. So that's an invitation to, well, to be mindful. Because how are we going to understand anything except if we look, observe, come to know its nature and see for ourselves, oh, this is, this is the way it is. So really, if we're practicing mindful awareness as we are, but we learn how to make these visitors to the mind the, the topic of interest, uh, it's only a matter of time before you've gathered enough, uh, before you've observed it long enough, before you've understood its nature, before you have the uh, wisdom to, well, not be bothered by them, to understand, oh, this is just a visitor to the mind. I don't have to, you know, kind of get rid of it. I don't have to struggle with it. 
so how 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 can we understand these torments? You know, in for those of you who have done retreats before or have practiced much at all, you will have heard of the hindrances. You know, the five hindrances that obstruct our practice, that make it difficult to practice to and you've met them all today. <laughs> Sleepiness, sloth and torpor, familiar? Mm-hmm. How about restlessness, the mind that just wanders off without being tethered to anything? Familiar. Any form of aversion, irritation, impatience? Yeah, pretty handy. Uh, how about desire, wanting, longing, yarn, just waiting for the bell to ring at the end of the sitting, wanting? Mm-hmm. Okay, and then doubt. Am I doing this right? Is this, is this actually work? Am I investing in a good, <laughs> something that's going to reward my efforts? And what do I do with this experience anyway? Doubt. So we're, <laughs> we're all familiar with these visitors to the mind in the form of hindrances. So what, how can we understand them? How can we, what do we need to understand about them in order to be able to work with them in our practice? So that we're not struggling, we're not uh, overwhelmed by, we're not uh, kind of caving into them, but that we're actually engaged with and learning about them. <clears throat> so we should understand that these, you know, all the times today when the mind wandered off into a train of thought, and while it was wandering in that train of thought, you didn't know. You didn't know what you were thinking about. You didn't know when you started thinking about it. You don't know. You don't know whether you liked what you were thinking about or not. You don't know when the train of thought is going to stop. You don't know where you're going to get off. And while that's going on, you don't know if you're sitting, standing, lying down, doing yoga. You don't know your age. You don't know the time of day. You don't know anything, right? You're complete. You're completely lost in this train of thought. Now, the word for that degree of lostness is avijja, ignorance. Now, it's not, I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying the state of mind is ignorant of, any, of everything. So these torments are all rooted in some form of ignorance or delusion. I'm going to make a distinction between ignorance and delusion. But when we are lost in that train of thought, you know, you can have, you can have all kinds of thoughts that aren't wholesome. But you don't know it, so what's the bother? The bother is when we're wandering, when the mind is wandering in this train of thoughts that you're not aware of, and it's going, you know, it's ruminating about, you know, the past and imagining the future, and it's just, you know, whatever. You're actually reinforcing all of the conditioning of your, of your life. You're just reinforcing it kind of blindly. You're not seeing it with insight and able to kind of see another way of understanding anything. You're just strengthening the unskillful conditioning that we've learned <clears throat> from, you know, family and friends and peers and society and culture. Wow. So it really is not benign to just wander around in aimless thought. It's actually strengthening really unskillful states of mind. So we could say that this visitor to the mind, this ignorance visiting the mind, obscures the object. We don't, we don't see what's going on. Totally obscure. And we could be doing anything. 
it's either these these torments are either rooted in that kind of ignorance or they're rooted in delusion. Now, delusion is a little different. Delusion doesn't obscure the object or the experience. You know what the experience is, but you understand it wrongly. Meaning, you know, you, you know, you know where you get on the train of thought. You know what you're thinking about. You know who you're thinking about. You know what you're thinking about. But you're thinking about it wrongly. Now, the way that we can understand this is that when, for example, desire arises in the mind, a visitor to the mind, and you look at someone or something, or you imagine something about your future, when you look at anything through the lens of desire or attachment, all you can see, all you recognize is the pleasant characteristic or the pleasant aspect of that person or that object or that experience. That's the nature of attachment. That's the nature of desire. It causes you to only see the pleasant characteristics of something. And so it looks great. It looks just like, wow, yeah, right. I, I need that. I want that. It's going to be pleasant. But when aversion arises in the mind, visits the mind, we look at the same thing, the same person, the same event, the same memory, the same plan, and all we can see is the unpleasant aspects of it. Same event, same person. You know, sometimes, you know, take for example, you're planning a holiday. So you're planning a holiday and you have desire in the mind. Everything, all you think of is good weather, trains on time, no lost luggage, good food, no problem. But then later, you're still doing the planning and aversion rises in the mind and you start thinking, what if the train's late? What if I lose my luggage? What if I... And then you get anxious, you get fretful, you, get, you buy insurance, extra insurance, and, you, know, and you, you kind of watch your health for the week before you're going to go on. Same, same, same plan. Same, same thing that you're imagining. But from the lens, seeing through the lens of desire, it looks like smooth sailing. Seen through the lens of aversion, it looks like trouble ahead. <laughs> this is the nature of the visitor to the mind. It's not the plan, and it's not your skill at planning. It's the visitor to the mind that, ca that causes us to see events in these ways. So we say that kind of delusion obscures the, the nature of the object. We see the object. The object is this plan, this holiday. But the nature of it is obscured. Sometimes we see only the pleasant, sometimes only the unpleasant. And in fact, we know it may never happen <laughs> that, that holiday. You know, no matter how you plan for it, it's out of your control, isn't it? All the conditions that go into having a pleasant holiday. You can't make it happen. There are so many conditions outside of your control to begin with. Nevertheless, we can see the effect of these visitors to the mind in this way. These visitors, or these tormented states of mind, are also fueled by restlessness. And restlessness in this instance is the wandering mind. The wandering mind that is just wandering on, thinking about this, thinking about that, some of which you notice, some of which you don't. 
when you don't notice it, there's ignorance present. When you do notice it, but understand it wrongly, there's delusion present. But the mind is just scrolling along. It is the fuel of this kind of um, tormented thinking. Now, the interesting thing about this kind of tormented thinking is it's always about me. <laughs> it's always about me. There's something about me. It's always a narrative of my life that I'm kind of commenting on the past or the present or the future. And so it looks like it really is solid. It looks like who I am, how I am. So today you may have seen some of these habits of mind, these uh, unskillful reactive habits of mind that are so common, really, so frequent, frequently arising in our mind, that we take them to be who we really are. They, they have assumed the proportion of our personality, actually. They're so habitual, and we've seen them so often, or I should say, we haven't seen them so often, but we still take them for granted. My own, my own situation is, um, I, I kind of characterize my the, the base of the default setting of my personality is I was not born with a patience gene. Impatience is the default setting for everything. Not everything, but that's what I think. It has arisen so often, impatience, as a kind of a, well, a dysfunctional strategy for dealing with something. It has arisen so often that I kind of eternalize it into this kind of like, well, I'm. I'm always impatient. And when you kind of eternalize something into always impatient, then it kind of globalizes into, well, I'm just impatient all the time. And when we have that kind of assumption or kind of a belief about ourselves, it's just a short, slippery slope to, I'm an impatient person. And when we get a belief like that in our, in our heart, in our mind, I'm an angry person, I'm a depressed person, I'm an you know, I'm, I'm, I'm inadequate person in some way, I'm, I'm whatever. That belief about ourselves is almost impossible to get out of the mind. We've seen it so often, we've reaffirmed it so often, that now it has become a reified, solidified, enduring sense of ourself. Even when it's not happening, we still think, even when I can practice a little patience at times, I still have this belief, well, I'm really an impatient person, but I'm just... So you, you, can, you can look at your own uh, mind, your own uh, beliefs about yourself, and how would you characterize yourself? I'm a fearful person. I'm a self-conscious person. I'm insecure, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I have a lot of anxiety, it's my anxiety. You know, it's, it's, it sounds normal because that's kind of what we see of our personality. But really, every time they arise, they're just a visitor to the mind. But we don't see that, we're not paying close enough attention to see that it's just a visitor to the mind. <clears throat> When we get identified like that, it's clear that they obstruct 
our living of life fully. Just take fear. We all know fear. We've all been afraid of different things in our life. We may be afraid of public speaking. We may be afraid of emotional involvement. We may be afraid of social interaction. We may be afraid of being alone. We may be afraid of things, you know, personal failure, so we don't try things. Because of fear, we don't even try that which causes us fear. And so gradually over the course of our life, we just live in the comfortable range of what we're not afraid of, and that range gets smaller and smaller and smaller until at our age, we have a pretty well-worn track of things that we know aren't going to make us too uncomfortable. And yet, so much of life is outside of our zone of safety, where we feel not afraid. And so these visitors to the mind cause us to shrink in fulfillment of our human potential. They certainly hinder our progress in meditation practice. Take doubt. All of you may have, or many of you have, may have ex discovered this visitor to your mind today. When, you know, some experience comes up, pain in the body or some emotional drama and, or whatever, and you have this thought, what do I do with this? You know, I've, 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 I'm aware of it, but it's still there, and I've noted it, and it's still there, and Maybe I, maybe I should sit differently. Maybe I should, you know, go out walking. Maybe if I walk fast enough, I'll get ahead of it. Uh, maybe if I sit long enough, it'll... Well, we're caught in doubt, aren't we? We're caught in, what, what should I do? Uh, should I do this? Should I do that? How do, how do I deal with my depression? You know, I got depression, or depression visits my mind a lot. Should I um, take meds? No. Should I go to a concert? Should I put on some music? Should I, what, what should I? So when doubt enters the mind, we're kind of paralyzed. We kind of don't know what to do. Doubt is characterized, or the image that they use for doubt in, in the text is, if you were a, a traveler in a foreign land, traveling alone on the roads, and you come to an intersection in the road, and there's no road sign, do you go left or do you go right? You can see, your mind is just paralyzed. You have no way of evaluating left or right. But you still, that doesn't stop you from thinking about, well, last time I took a left, at the last intersection I took a left, maybe I should vary my choices and take a right. Or it looks like this one is going in the right direction. And we try to figure it out through thinking, but doubt in practice cannot be overcome by thinking. We can borrow others' confidence. You can talk to a teacher, they can give you some confidence, say, well, here, just try this. And for a while you might trust that and, and practice that way until you find out for yourself it works or it doesn't. Or you can read something and, and get some inspiration for practice, some confidence in practice, and keep practicing. But on your own, you can't think it out. There's no answer. It's only through actually practicing with doubt, being mindfully aware of doubt, knowing its nature, learning how it affects you, how it affects your practice, that you'll then understand the nature of doubt and you won't be so caught by it. You'll be able to see, oh, oh this is doubt. Oh, I know, what, I know what the nature of doubt is. 
I'm going to feel this way. I'm going to feel that way. I'm not going to know what to do. But you know that. It's as if these torments, they cloud the mind, you know, with confusion, delusion, ignorance. And then they offer you a narrative of your life which is unsatisfactory. Enchanting the mind into some tormented state of struggle with the way things are. Upandita characterizes being lost in these torments as like a long-running hallucination. We're imagining something about ourselves that's not so. It's just a visitor that we don't. It's a visitor that we don't see and don't understand. <clears throat> so when the Buddha awoke to the truth and understood these visitors to the mind and their effect on the mind, when he offered his first teaching of the Four Noble Truths that kind of laid out his understanding of the nature of the reality of our life, you know, there's, there's suffering caused by clinging, there is the end of suffering, realized through developing the Noble Eightfold Path. The Noble Eightfold Path is three trainings, really. It's a training in sila, which we're doing here by keeping the precepts. The precepts are um, rest on our mindful awareness of the intention in our mind before speaking and acting. So that if one of these visitors, like anger, comes to the mind and we're caught in a dialogue or there's something that we're kind of like, incensed about, you know, rather than saying or doing anything and acting that out, Sila says, you know, I undertake the precept to refrain from harmful speech. Okay. I got such a good lesson of this when I was in Thailand one time. I made a flight arrangement to go from, fly from Bangkok down to Koh Samui. And I didn't know that you're supposed to call 24 hours ahead to confirm that you're going to be on the flight. So I got to the airport. I had my ticket. Here's the ticket. Here's, I'm on time. And I go to the counter and they said, uh, sorry, you didn't call yesterday and confirm that you were going to be flying today. And I said, how was I to know? Well, you're just supposed to know. I got so angry. I was just incensed. I was just enraged. I was so unskillful. So I said to the, the Thai clerk there behind the counter, I said, I want to be on that plane. I bought a ticket. I want you to get me on that plane. I was so angry, kind of at the world, you know, and I was just frothing. At the end of which she said, that's not nice. <laughs> she was not afraid of my anger. It was such an abrupt like mirror being held up, just like, take a look. It's like, oh my God. You know, and of course it's appropriately shaming and uh, kind of like humiliating. And it's like, okay, but they did get me a seat. <laughs> so this is, this is the, you know, the kind of the, but still, you know, you don't feel good about 
you know, having acted out that way and been kind of busted. But that's what, that's what sila does. It helps you to kind of prevent that kind of suffering. But sometimes we still, even if we can exercise that kind of restraint, you know, we... I could have been just thinking about what I wanted to say and thinking about what I wanted to be doing and be totally obsessed with anger and indignation. I'm not saying it and I'm not acting it out. I'm just saying, not me. And that kind of keeping a keeping an keeping an eye on the obsessing of the mind is the second training. And that's the training in mindfulness because if you're mindful, you will see this state of mind visiting. And you'll go, whoa, this is, if I'm not careful, I'm going to get really entangled in this, the story of my self-righteous, nah, 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 nah. and if I'm not really careful, I'm going to act it out. So then with mindfulness, you can just see, okay, here it is, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I'm thinking, I better, it's mindfulness that tames the obsessing mind. You know, the compulsive mind, the addictive mind. It's mindfulness that sees it and just momentarily arrests it, momentarily, 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 to give us some relief. Because being aware of an unwholesome state of mind is in itself a wholesome state of mind. When you're, at, when you're caught in that unwholesome mind of anger, desire, fear, jealousy, or self-pity, you're caught in it, and you're just obsessing, that's not, that's, that's, that's torturous. But when you're able to, woo, step back and, and see it, it's there, but you see it. That's a little bit of space, a little bit of relief, a little bit of knowledge. The knowledge that a mindfulness, the awareness that shows you, oh, this is the nature of the state of mind. So that kind of uh, second training in mindfulness or uh, steadiness of mind, collectedness of mind, is the second training of the Noble Eightfold Path. But even then, sometimes, you know, conditions just aren't conducive to being totally mindful and exercising restraint. And so there's a third training of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is the training in wisdom. And this is what we're practicing here. We're practicing mindfulness. We're practicing sila, restraint. We're practicing mindfulness, being aware of what's going on. And we're also practicing insight, which is attending to each moment's experience in order to understand its nature. And when we do, as, as we do, as we continue watching these states of mind, then we are, our understanding of them changes. So where initially we might think of impatience or anger as being a, you know, a strategy for dealing with you know, difficult, unpleasant situations, we understand differently from our observation. And it's insight that is going to reveal that, understand, that change in understanding. To change your beliefs about anything is really hard. It's really difficult. It's not a matter of read something in a book, think it's a good idea, and agree. That, that, that can change some superficial beliefs or ideas. But the, but the beliefs and the strategies we have for dealing with protecting ourselves or getting what we want are really deeply rooted.
and we have to see into the roots of those mistaking, mistaken strategies in order to actually change them. And this is what we're doing. That's why it's so difficult to just be with moment to moment the you know, moment to moment experiences and bear with them in order to really come to understand the nature of these states of mind. There are three elements to this wisdom, this, this understanding that we come to through mindfulness and uh, insight practice. The first is we need the right information. If you don't hear this information about these states of mind, you'll just continue with your self-righteous indignation and entitlement or feeling, feeling victimized and identified with your personality traits. But when you hear this information that I'm sharing and you begin to understand it a little bit, this information helps you to kind of, whoa, whoa, let me, let me just see what's going on here. It at least invites closer inspection. And the second uh, element of wisdom is using your own intelligence. You know, like you can reflect back on some of the painful experiences in your life and you can see, you know, that really wasn't all that skillful. You know, I didn't have the right information. I wasn't very aware. And so I acted in a way that caused myself and others pain. Okay, this is, this is using your intelligence in a way that is brings some further understanding of, well, these visitors to the mind. And the third aspect or element of wisdom is insight and intuitive understanding. Insightful awareness and intuitive understanding of, oh, this is the way it is. Right. But because we see it in our own experience from our empirical observation of our own dynamics of suffering, ah, then we kind of, right. When we see something at that depth of insight and we have a new understanding, then we're starting to be free. We're starting to be free of the delusion, the confusion that we've been operating under for a long time. Okay. So with this information, we begin. And when we hear, you know, I've mentioned dozens of these visitors to the mind already. Now, what I found really difficult in my own practice was, even though I heard talks on the five hindrances, sloth and torpor, doubt, restlessness, desire and aversion. When I practiced, I, I didn't see them. I was just struggling to be with the breath and be with the next moment. I was just, you know, struggle, 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 struggle. I didn't see any aversion. I didn't see any desire. You know, even the first time I did a, my first three-month retreat, I'd been doing short retreats like this for about uh, eight years. And then I did a, a three-month retreat. And there was a period of time in the middle of the three-month retreat for like six weeks where every day for a few hours in the morning, I had overwhelming sloth and torpor. It was just like I could not get out of this, you know, bobbing and nodding and drifty, dreamy, just, you know, it didn't matter how much I slept or how little I slept or how much I ate or how little I ate, it didn't matter. It was like every day for six weeks. I went to every teacher, every interview, just 
complaining about sloth and torpor. But it was like I really wasn't open to the sloth and torpor. All I wanted to know was how to get rid of it. And so I was struggling with it. I wasn't, I didn't know then that, hey, if I just turn my attention and be mindful with it, mindful of it, I stop struggling and start learning. It's, it's the, whole, the whole journey is coming out of our reactivity to the way things are and acknowledging kind of in an objective way the way things are. So when we hear about these states of mind, when they happen, we can subjectively own them and say, oh, what? you know what? I'm angry. I'm depressed. I'm feeling self-pity. I'm caught in delusion or whatever. So we can subjectively acknowledge that at a kind of a psychological level, but we can also objectively say, well, th- this is what's happening right now. Oh, self-pity has arisen. Okay. So after 10 years of doing retreats like that, I went to Burma and ordained and I'm practicing in the monastery. And I was there for about four, four and a half years. And somewhere, I don't know, I'd probably been there a year. Maybe it was in my second year. I'm not sure exactly when. Uh, I remember I was walking on the, the hallway outside my room in the little cottage for foreign men there. And I remember I was walking in the direction towards the bathroom and I was right by this window. And I remember the first time I saw something I hadn't seen before. I saw this mental state arise that kind of, it didn't have a, it didn't have a voice. It didn't have a name, but the effect was, I just kind of went, oh, collapsed. I just collapsed. It kind of, when it arose, it just pulled the plug out of the energy socket and just went clunk. And I thought, well, I mean, when I was there, I was really, I was pretty gung-ho. I was, <laughs> I was there. I was practicing for, you know, enlightenment or bust. We'll get to that later. But anyway, I was, that was kind of my struggle, <laughs> my aspiration. And I noticed this thing. I go, wow, what, what just happened? I'm kind of going along, going along, and then, huh. Yeah. Started again, going along, going along, and, you know, huh. I thought, so I started looking really closely at what is going on here? What, what is happening in the mind that makes this energy collapse? And what I noticed was there was this little voice that would come up that would go, oh, poor me, I can't do this. It wasn't even a thought. It was just kind of like an assumption, but it was so subtle. It's like, oh, poor me. And when I would get to the oh, poor me, I'd go, you know, I can't do this. And then, you know, the thoughts kind of ran, well, I'm too old. I'm too stupid. I didn't start early enough. You know, I'm, I'm inadequate. You know, I did too many drugs. You know, I just, you know, or, or I didn't do enough drugs. You know, <laughs> I mean, whatever. You know, and you get, the mind will, com- the mind has no shame. It'll, it'll tell you anything. <laughs> okay, so you have to, you know, mindfulness has this, capacity to just see things as they are. And the interest, there's a, there's a 
there's another mental state, another, another mental factor that accompanies uh, uh, mindfulness. It's called ujukata, straightness of mind. It means it causes you to not be able to deceive yourself so that you see things just as they are. And you can't spin it any other way. And so when you see something with mindfulness straight, your mind is so straight it just goes, Tum! no wavering, no waffling, no, is it, isn't it, should I, shouldn't I? It's clear. Well, that's what, that's what happened. The mindfulness was strong enough to just see this self-pity that I'd never seen before. I always had some belief in the little assumption that accompanied it. Now I couldn't spin it that way. I could just see, this is self-pity, causes collapse of energy. Wow. So I saw it. It can, it can be that difficult to see habits of mind that were so entangled in that we don't recognize. <coughs> That's why we have to practice the continuity of Mindfulness, the continuity of remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. And, you know, most of, most of your day, the present moment experience is familiar, ordinary, normal, boring. The breath. How many breaths did you watch today? How many steps did you notice today? How many times did you, you know, infinite number, right? Boring. Haven't you got it down yet? Yeah. Well, keep doing it. Because we use very safe, benign, normal experiences to train the mind to remember to recognize the present moment. They're safe, safe objects for the most part. So that when this habitual thing called self-pity arises that you've never seen before, never owned before, like psychologically, just when it arises... The mind is already recognizing the present moment, remembering to recognize the present moment, straight. This is how we discover things about ourselves that we've never known. Everybody else knows it about you, but you don't know it. <laughs> you know, and it's not about reading about it. It's about discovering it in your own mental behavior or misbehavior. That's why we practice awareness, so we can see it. As soon as I saw that, that state of mind, that self-pitying thing, I was very defensive about it. I, I didn't want to own it. I was like upset about it. I was like, I was going to try harder so that it never arose. And, you know, just, and this is, you know, when we see our own stuff, we often feel either uh, uh, emboldened by it, you know, leading with our wound, as they say, psychologically. You know, I'm an abused person, therefore, this is why I am the way I am. Or we kind of get defensive and disown it and say, not me, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. And so, relaxing around the appearance and the recognition of these states of mind is the second step. First, we have to recognize them. And secondly, we need to relax. Just kind of like, wait a minute. Don't defend yourself. Just own it. Objectify it. See it. Name it. Claim it. 
because it is said that to name a demon begins to take away its power. And these states of mind, these tormented states of minds are like demons. They, they, scare, they scare us out of being fully human. And so when we can name them, when we can say, I see you, self-pity. I see you, fear. I see you, you know, anger. I see you, impatience. I see you, self, you know, whatever, self-consciousness. I see you, depression. Wow, already they, they can't exist quite as strongly, as blindly. They, don't, they can't manipulate you quite as easily. You're beginning to engage them. Sadhu Tejaniya again, he says, the mind is not yours but you're responsible for it. Which means, you know, what arises in the mind, oh, we don't get to choose. You know, anybody's mind can go anywhere at any time. Now just imagine, you're sitting here, you're listening to, you know, something you're interested in. Somebody comes to the back of the door, starts screaming, you know, obscenities at all you da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Do you think that would change what's going on in your heart and mind? Immediately, wouldn't it? You know, your mind is not yours. You know, it's, it, it's easily taken away by somebody else. Somebody else's behavior. And we can't stop that from happening. Ordinarily. And we're influenced and we're conditioned by haphazard and seemingly random things all day long. And our mind is just reacting and reacting, 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 reacting. But if you're practicing awareness, once you see that, that impulse, that, that stimulus that is provoking this impulse, then you can be mindful and you can choose how to respond to this stimulation rather than being caught in a kind of a habitual, dysfunctional reaction. But that's only possible when we own it, when we see this is what's going on, this is what I'm feeling, this is my impulse, and being mindfully aware of it. Otherwise, we'll just get caught in it, we'll be blinded by it, we'll act it out, feeling great about it, and causing ourselves and others more suffering. So it's important to understand that these tormented states of mind can only arise, can only arise when we're not paying careful attention. So this careful attention, this wise attention, this informed attention, is what we're doing here, what we're practicing here. But when there, you know, when we lapse and we don't have this informed, wise attention, then these torments can arise. But as soon as we notice them and we start paying wise attention to them, we begin to remove the foundation of their being, so to speak. One of the conditions that gives Things arise due to causes and conditions. If you take away one of the causes or conditions, that thing will disappear, will, will come to an end. So too with these visitors to the mind. They get into the mind because of unwise attention. And as soon as we start paying wise attention, we are showing them the door. Not out of aversion, but out of understanding, out of wisdom and understanding. We see this is the way it is. So with this amount of information about ourself, not just from the book, but about ourselves, because we're paying attention, we're noticing this is the way it is for me, then we can start using our intelligence 
to work with them a little more carefully. So the first way of working with them intelligently is to refrain from acting them out. You know, I mean, there, there are certain beliefs, and I think there's even some psychotherapies maybe that, that think that, you know, if you're angry, you should get your anger out. Really express it and get enraged and act it out, and there, that'll be better. But actually, acting out like that, I'm not saying this about psychotherapy, but acting out our stuff only strengthens our delusion, confusion, and entanglement in those states of mind. Psychotherapeutically, you might have some other guidance to help you figure it out. But when we just act out our anger, act out our depression, act out our fear, act out our desire, without knowing and without learning about it, knowing about it, we're just strengthening that habit of mind, being entangled in that tormented state of mind. One way we can do that, you know, when we feel overwhelmed or nearly overwhelmed by some, you know, emotional drama, and some of you have experienced stuff like that today, we just feel overwhelmed with either sleepiness or overwhelmed with anxiety or overwhelmed with doubt. What do you do? Well, one thing you can do is turn your attention away from that experience to something that's neutral. Turn, just start noticing seeing, hearing, feeling sensations in the body, rather than the story or the narrative in your mind that's, that, is, that is so much suffering. You're still being mindful. You're turning your mindful attention to recognize seeing, hearing, feeling sensations, rather than staying kind of entangled in the tormented state of mind. Or this afternoon, as Kamala offered you the loving-kindness practice, if you're caught in anger, you know, and you've got some impatience or anger or frustration coming up in your mind, and it's kind of overwhelming you, then having learned how to practice loving-kindness, you can mindfully turn your attention, practice mindfulness of loving-kindness to minimize the impact of that aversion. And that's a skillful, that's skillful avoidance. This is not turning away out of aversion. It's saying, wait a minute, the mindfulness isn't strong enough to be aware of this aversion. It's too intense. It's too overwhelming. Let me find another way of being mindful to recharge my batteries, build up a little energy, get some relief from that torment. So we do loving kindness. Very skillful way of turning your attention away from the overwhelming visitor to the mind to replacing it with its antidote, for example. Or you can practice forgiveness if you're caught in some blaming, resentful state of mind. Or you can practice uh, confidence, building up your confidence or faith by recalling how you get into practice, stories you've heard of your teacher or others and their practice when you're feeling doubt about practice. So there's ways of keeping the mindfulness going but turning it away from what is at the present moment overwhelming. It's wisdom, it's your intelligence that is going to remind you to do that. So it's using your intelligence in your practice. Don't just keep struggling with things that are overwhelming. It's like, use your intelligence. What can I do here? Turn your attention elsewhere. 
a fourth step or fourth phase of working with these tormented states of mind is if you've recognized them and you've kind of accepted or relaxed your defensiveness about them and you have used your intelligence to kind of um, refrain from acting them out, then we need to, or you might need to reframe your understanding. Because so often these visitors to the mind, when they arise, we think, I got to get rid of this in order to practice meditation. I got to get rid of this sleepiness before I can actually do it. I got to get rid of this irritation and anger before I can be peaceful and calm. And if we have that wrong understanding, we're going to be trying to get rid of these visitors to the mind and struggling and out of aversion and struggling with them rather than using our intelligence and saying, now wait a minute, this state of mind has arisen due to causes and conditions. It's habitual. It's got a lot of strength. What's the best way of working with this? Not to just struggle with it. It's, it's, you know some of your habits of mind. They're pretty tenacious. So we want to just use our intelligence and say, wait a minute, I could struggle with this for a long time and it's going to be frustrating, it's going to be tiring and that's not very skillful. What's more skillful is to reframe your understanding or to reframe that misunderstanding because this experience that's arising is, now remember what mindfulness is. Mindfulness is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. Okay, so remind yourself of that. Okay, rather than being entangled in and caught in the aversion, the frustration, disappointment, right? Doubt, sleepiness. Recognize, recognize it. Step back and just recognize, oh, this is what's being known. This is using your intelligence to remind yourself that practice is just, just remembering to recognize the present moment's experience, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, familiar or novel, subtle or gross, physical, mental, emotional, whatever it is. So this state of mind, it could be a story about how angry you are, or how frustrated you are, you can't, can't get the sitting that you had earlier this morning, or whatever, whatever it is. And you just go, wait a minute, what's going on? Oh. Anger is being known, irritation is being known, self-pity is being known. And that reframing your understanding that this is the very place, this is the very kind of experience that we're not yet able to recognize and be mindful of. So this is the very place to, to really make the effort, to, to establish some effort to be aware of this state of mind. And that means, well, naming it owning it, seeing it, acknowledging it, being willing to engage it, meaning being willing to feel your way into it. And this is where we use mindfulness for insight. This is the fifth step in working with these states of mind is to uh, receive, receive the nature of this experience. Now we know we've, we know what frustration is, we know what disappointment is, we know what striving is, we know all that. But what does it feel like? We know the story of it. I'm so upset because there's the narrative. We got that down. 
But what does this state of mind actually feel like? When you feel doubt, what does it actually feel like? When you feel, you know, self-pity, what does that actually feel like? When you feel, you know, fear, what does that actually feel like? If we're just acting them out, we're trying to get away from the feeling. And the feeling, let me just say, the feeling is not going to be pleasant. But we've experienced a lot of unpleasantness already in our life. Why are we still afraid of it? This practice would ask you to have the understanding and the courage, the strength of heart, the strength of mind to say, I can, I can bear with this for a while. Let me just, I can hold this. I can bear with this. I can, I can, I can do this. Okay, and then it's just to, to learn how to open to, how to receive the feeling of these. And I don't mean uh, an emotional piece. I mean, it's just what does it actually feel like tangibly in the body? What does it feel like in the heart? Sayadaw Tejaniya again, he says, yogis make the mistake of expecting or hoping for good experience rather than being willing and trying to work with these torments of the mind. You know, a couple, couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, or longer than that, you saw the advertisement in the Spirit Rock uh, newsletter. Oh, you know, there's going to be a retreat with Steve and Kamala and Deborah and Vance, and it's going to be seven days of, you know, this, these two kind of practices, and you think, oh, yeah, I got some time off then. That'd be great. Go to Spirit Rock. They have such good food there. It's going to be in the spring. It's going to be lovely. You know, and I just love being with that, that group of people. You know, it's so just pleasant and calm. And, you know, you just get kind of open and loving and peaceful. And, right? And, and they, somehow that kind of tricks us into signing up. <laughs> right? You know, we're looking at the retreats with attachment in the, in the mind. So all we see is like, it's going to be perfect. And then you get here. How's it going? <laughs> it's not what we imagine, is it? It's like we, we were thinking, yeah, 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 yeah. But actually, really, we sh- when we think of a retreat, we should think seven days of dealing with the tormented mind. <laughs> right, that's it. I'm going to look for and to really work with these tormented states of mind. Anybody have that kind of... Well, we know that that's, you know, if you've done any retreats, you know, that's kind of what it ends up being. Still, it, it is rewarding and it's, and it's uh, the wisdom you get from it. But nevertheless, it's not always our first thought. So as we, as we feel our way into these states of mind, we learn their nature. We can learn about the nature of fear, the nature of anger. As again, Saito Tejaniya says, use the appearance of these torments as an opportunity to investigate their nature. They are natural phenomena. They're not your torment. Everyone experiences them. If there's anger in the mind, don't think more about what is making you angry. Instead, notice that there is anger and get interested in it. Like, oh, this is anger. Huh, there's anger in the mind. This is the nature of anger, to be like this. What's that like? Huh? Arousing awareness like this continually. In this way, you don't work at being angry. You work at being continuously aware. Doesn't that sound? That sounds like a reasonable alternative. And what happens when we can do that? What happens when we can, you know, with confidence, just kind of steady our attention, be with and receive the, the nature of this uh, tormented state of mind? We, 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 we come to intuitively understand three things. 
The first is, these things are out of our control. We don't make them come. We can't make them go away. We'd rather they didn't happen, but they do anyway. They're not ours. They are impersonal forces that arise due to their own causes and conditions. They're not who you are. They're not yours. They're just being known, something being known. Okay? That's the anatta characteristic, what I call the impersonal or self, selfless characteristic. The second thing that we intuitively get, you know, we've been working with it and we've, we've felt it, but we get it, it's like, these are really unsatisfactory. As much as we might like desire, you know, the, the object of desire, the feeling of desire is really not okay. They're all not okay. They just really torment us. That's the dukkha characteristic. And the third characteristic is when we're willing and able to just confidently, let me feel it. Let me, let me just be with this. Let me just, let me just settle in. Hang. It doesn't last very long. It doesn't last. It's our imagination. It's our blind assumption that this is the way it's going to be forever. I'm, fr- I'm frustrated now, I'm, so I'm always going to be frustrated. I'm sleepy now, I'm always going to be sleepy. We don't really say that to ourselves. We, we wouldn't even believe it. But that's the feeling that we have inside. This is the way it's going to be forever. And, and when we are able to actually steady our mind and be there with it, to really receive it forever, if you're willing to just be with it forever, it won't last long at all. And this is recognizing it's impermanence, the characteristic of impermanence, the Nietzsche characteristic. This is the nature of Vipassana. Vipassana insight leads us to understand these three characteristics about everything. And when you, when you, when you understand in this way any of these, any of these tormented states, you stop suffering, you stop struggling. You know, you have confidence that you can bear with, you can be with, it comes, you can feel it, you understand it, it'll leave, no problem. That's the path of liberation. Being free of these mistaken beliefs, these dysfunctional strategies, and finding another way. And each time that we can bear with and hold on, hold on to the awareness, not lose our mind, but stay with this and receive this and open to and see this, these characteristics of all phenomena, then we're changing our mind. We're changing our beliefs about how to deal with the difficulties and the challenges of life. We're changing our strategies from being dysfunctional to being aware and insightful. This is the path, the practice that we're on. So we don't want to run away from, we don't want to deny, we don't want to just struggle with these difficult states of mind that you experience today and you'll probably discover tomorrow, but rather work with them in this way to really recognize them, to own them, not to be so defensive, to not act them out, to refrain, retrain, reframe your understanding, to receive them and to understand, to really realize their nature. And this offers tremendous relief. As long as you are aware of these torments, you're doing well, Tejaniya says. So, if you're aware of them, you're doing well. You did well today, huh? Okay. Uh, in order to understand these torments, you have to watch them again and again. What can you gain from just having or expecting good experiences? 
If you understand the nature of these torments, they will dissolve. And once you're able to handle these torments, good experiences will naturally follow. Remember that it's not you who removes these torments. Wisdom or understanding does that job. And when you are continuously aware, continuously mindful, wisdom unfolds naturally. That's our work. That's what we're doing here. So when you hear this way of working with these tormented states of mind, please take it in. Understand that you don't just need to struggle. There's a way of working with them where you can gain not just relief, but release through misunderstanding. So let's just sit for a moment let these words settle in. The mind by nature is radiant and pure. It is because of visiting forces known as the torments that we suffer. But it is not you who removes these torments. Wisdom does that job. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma. There's um, a little less than a half hour for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.